sermon text is taken from Ephesians chapter 5. We're continuing our work our way through Ephesians 5, just verse by verse. And we arrive this morning at verse 24. These are the words of God. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Father, we live in a world that hates the glory of womanhood, and in particular, the calling of a wife to imitate the church's submission to Christ. We know that we are not immune to the world's siren songs that mock this and belittle it, and so we ask you for an extra measure of your spirit this morning so that your word would pierce deep into our hearts, addressing our particular sins and weaknesses and strengthening us for the battle before us. We ask for it in Jesus' name, and amen. So we come to the next verse in Ephesians 5, turning to the Christian wife's duty to embrace the glory of imitating the church's obedience to Christ in her obedience in everything to her husband. The world, of course, calls this oppression, calls this tyranny, calls this backward, but we call it glory. We call it glory. We call it glory under God's blessing. Now, in order to talk in a helpful way about the obedience of a Christian wife to her own husband and everything, in imitation of the church to Christ, we really need to zoom out just a bit and talk about the glory of obedience in general. We need to talk about the glory of obedience in general. We live in a culture that has glamorized rebellion and disobedience. We live in a culture that has glamorized rebellion and disobedience, and, and this is and it's really everywhere. There's a few places where they're willing to say, okay, I guess you have to obey there. I guess you have to submit there. The court ordered it. The police officer said it. Uh, well, you, you have to obey there because it's, it's really, really important there. But, but in general, our culture glamorizes rebellion, glamorizes disobedience. And this is why um, our culture is descending uh, into the chaos that it's descending into is because you can't keep saying it's really cool to disobey. It's really sexy not to follow any rules. You can't keep saying that and then not expect some people to do it. <laughs> Just do it all the time. What, but you know, what, why are you going to say, but you have to keep the speed limit? You just said it was sexy to break rules. You, 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 how are you going to say, well, yes, but you, you have to obey the police officer? Well, says who? You have to obey the, obey the teacher. Why? You just said it was cool to be a rebel. And, and, and so that's where we're going, and we're, we're running into that problem. Um, and so while we live in this culture, while we live in a culture that has glamorized rebellion and disobedience, we really must embrace the biblical teaching that obedience, when God requires it, is glorious. Obedience, when God requires it, is our glory. That, we, we need to just have that fixed in our heads and our hearts. When God requires us to obey him, this is a win. This is glory. There's, there's nothing dowdy about it. There's nothing boring about it. There's nothing lame about it. There's nothing losing about it. If it's, if it's our God who commands it, it's our glory. Obedience to God is our crown. And th think about this for a second. We don't, we don't live in a, in a monarchy, but I think you, it, it helps to think about, um, think about a good and glorious king. A good and glorious king. Maybe some of you, you know, um, thought about this some as we 
we recently witnessed the passing of the Queen of England, and maybe you watched some of the proceedings, just all the, the pomp, all the, all the festivities, all the parades, all the tradition, all this glory. Maybe for a moment you thought, well, wouldn't it be nice to live in a monarchy? And then you remembered you're American. <laughs> wait, wait, wait a second. No, but, but there is some, there's, something, there's something beautiful about it. There's something noble about it. There's something glorious about it. And, and, but think about it for a second. Think that, you know, if you have a king, a good king, imagine a, a good king, a faithful king, a, a noble king. He loves the Lord. He loves righteousness. He loves justice. He, he, he is for you. He leads you like that. And then he says, here's what I need you to do. If it's that king, it should never even cross your mind to think, wait, what? Why, why, why are you commanding me? If the command comes from that good and faithful king, you, you think, me? You, you want me to do that? You want me to, you want me to help you? It's all glory. It's all honor. If it, if it comes from a good and gracious and faithful king, you think, you, you want me to do something for you? And it's a crown. It's a badge of honor. You know, you want to wear it. The king said, I need to do this. You know, the king, he said, I need to do this. You're not embarrassed. You're not ashamed. It's your glory. It's your crown. Well, we have a king. We have a king. His name is Jesus. We serve the king of the universe, the triune God. And he gives us instructions. And we ought to think, oh, goody. We ought to think, he says, I get, to, I get to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I get to, I get to obey my, my husband as the church does to Christ. I get to obey my parents in the Lord. I get to honor them. I get, I, get, I get to do these things because I serve the king. Obedience to God is our crown. It's our glory. Think of some of the examples that scripture gives us of this, of this point. When Abraham obeyed God, going to the very brink of sacrificing his own son, God declared great blessing on him and said he was so impressed. You remember that on Mount Moriah? He raised his, his the knife. He, he's got him bound on the altar. And then God cries out to him, stop, now I know you fear me because you even would obey a command like this. And because you have done this thing, I will greatly bless you. It's that, I mean, Abraham, you know, he was a humble man, but I mean, that's a crown to him. That's a glory to him from them on. I mean, for the rest of the, in the history of the world, we've got this story and we think, wow, Abraham, you obeyed God even there. Just a couple chapters later in, in, uh, in Genesis 26, God's renewing covenant with Isaac, Abraham's son, and God even brings up the fact, he says, I'm gonna be your God, like I was the God of your father before you, Abraham, who always obeyed my commands. God sort of reminds Isaac of just how faithful his dad was and how impressed God was. That obedience was his glory. That obedience was a crown. Or later on, God said that obedience to him would make Israel his treasured possession among all peoples. Exodus 19, when God's making covenant there at Mount Sinai. Your obedience to me, he says, if you obey my voice and you keep covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. To be God's treasured possession is to be crowned. It's for people to know that. Who is that nation? God's favorite nation. That's, that's, that's glory. That obedience is glory. 
Uh, and when God set blessing before Israel, right on the verge of them taking Canaan in, in Deuteronomy, God set, said he was setting the blessing of obedience before them, which if they took up, if they would wear it, if they would say, yes, we're keeping covenant with God, God promised that no one would be able to stand against them. Right? That's glory. Obedience to God would be their glory, and no one would be able to stand against them because God would be with them. Obedience to God is glory. Conversely, disobedience to God is described as sexual infidelity. Disobedience to God is described as sexual infidelity. It's described as being an enemy of God, being shameful. This is James chapter four. In James four, it says, "Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever is a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And then just a couple verses down, it says, submit yourselves therefore to God. That's in James four. Notice that contrast. Being an adulterer, an adulteress, being a friend of the world, being an enemy of God, the, the repentance that James calls them to is submit yourself to God. So that's, that's the contrast, submission to God or being an enemy of God. Submission to God or being unfaithful to God, being an adulterer or an adulteress, being at enmity with God. Refusal to submit to God, refusal to embrace his commands and say, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm faithful to you. You are my God. Refusal to submit to God is enmity and infidelity and shame. Or think about just the nature of the word of God, the nature of the word of God itself. The word of God is that which brought everything into existence. And the word of God created the heavens and the earth. The word of God said, let there be light. Let there be sun, moon, and stars. Let there be lizards. Let there be birds. Let there be fish and whales. Let there be morning and evening and sunsets and sunrises. Let there be all this glory in the world, right? That's the word of God. And then the word of God comes to you and says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. The word of God comes to you and says, submit to your own husband as the church does to Christ. The word of God comes to you and says, raise up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Obey your parents in the Lord. The word of God comes to you and says, no lying, no cheating. What's, it's, it's not like those words are different. It's the same speaker. In fact, in, in Psalm 119, you know, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Psalter. It's the one where you, you keep flipping and it's still going and there are these Hebrew words over top, top of sections of it. They're actually, they're, the Hebrew words are the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 119 is what they call an acrostic poem. And there's a section for every letter of the alphabet. That's why it's so long. Say, so this is really long, just because it's going through the whole alphabet. We, the theme of Psalm 119, the theme of Psalm 119 is the word of God. The word of God. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You all know that one, right? Well, all through Psalm 119, it, it uses a number of different words to describe the word of God. It talks about the word of God, the words of God, the precepts of God, the instructions of God, the commands of God, the decrees of God. But notice how in terms of the, that psalm, and this is, this is true really throughout the rest of scripture, there's no major distinction made between God's word that's a light and God's command that's life. They go together. The same word that spoke creation into existence is the same word that gives you instructions. 
and, and, the, and the implication is, is that when you here get a command from God to do something, to be something, you're being invited to join the glory of creation. The same word that says galaxies spin. The same word that says colors be vibrant. The same word that makes all the best things in the universe comes to you and says, now here's your role to play. Right? Join the dance. Join the symphony. Join the glory. You want to shine? Here's your part. Right? That's, that's, that's what the law comes to do. That's what the word of God comes to do. It says, here's your part. The word of God comes to give us nothing less than blessing, life, glory, joy, and power. All the things you find in the world. Or, you know, was it a glory for the wind and the waves to obey Jesus? Remember on the Sea of Galilee, there's a storm. And Jesus rebuked and commanded the wind and the waves, peace, be still. Was that a glory for the wind and the waves to obey? Or was it, was it kind of lame? No, it was glorious. They got to obey the king of the universe. And all the disciples say, who is this who commands the wind and the waves? And even they obey him. Then it's glory for us to obey him too. It's glory for us to obey him too. When Peter and the apostles said that they must obey God rather than men, that was glory also. Remember Acts 5.29. That's where the, the, the chief priests and the and the scribes have said, you've got to stop preaching this Jesus. And they say, how can we stop? Whether it is better to obey God or men, maybe you can tell us. We're not going to stop. And that also included the glory of suffering for the name of Christ. At the end, they're, they're, they're beaten and they're released. And it says that they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. It was a glory to obey, and it was a glory to obey even when that obedience ran smack into instructions from other people, you better not. Now they said, no, sorry, this is our glory. And when they were beaten for it, and then released and threatened about it, it was still their glory. They rejoiced. We were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Or this, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. 1 John 5 Verse two, this is how we know that we're loving one another. This is how we know that we're loving the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. How do we know that we're actually loving God? How do we know that we're actually loving one another? By loving God and obeying his commandments. It, that's glory. It's glory to actually know that you're loving the people around you rightly. We live in this mass confusion where everybody's saying love, 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 love all the time. And what does that mean? Nobody knows. Right? They say it all the time, and it's, it's this feeling I get. Yeah, well, that feeling you get keeps going in crazy directions. Right? That, that feeling you get is not consistent, and you don't really know if you're loving. But this tells us it's, it's a gift to know that when you obey the commandments of God, you treat one another lawfully according to the word of God. You are, in fact, loving God and loving your neighbor. That's glory. That's glory. Now, of course... This obedient love that we're talking about, this obedience that is our glory, is always entirely a response of grace. Our obedience, our obedience is always a response to God's grace. It is always God at work in us. This is, this is not me saying, so all of you, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This is not me saying, grit your teeth, try harder. What, you don't have a lot of glorious obedience? What's wrong with you people? No, that's not what I'm saying. 
What I'm saying is be what God has done in you. Do what God has already begun in you. God works in us what is well-pleasing in his sight. And you say, well, I would really like to, but I'm just not very good at it. And, and we, sometimes we picture God maybe like, you know, he's the puppeteer and he's got the puppet and he says, you know, um, be good. And then the puppet doesn't, isn't good. And then he goes, bad puppet, bad puppet. Right? Just don't hit your sister. Bad puppet, bad. That, that's, that's not what God does. It's not like, well, God, we would obey you, but we just can't. No, that, that's, that's not what it's like at all. In fact, in, in Ephesians 2, in Ephesians 2, it says that, um, you, you know this in verse 8 and 9, it, it, I'll, um, let me read it to you, just a couple of verses back. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, nor of works, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Saved by grace, through faith, and that faith is not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, so no one can boast, because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we were to walk in them. And so the point is, is, is how do you know um, how do you know you can obey? Well, you know you can obey because you know the command. If you know the command, then God is giving you the power to obey. If you're outside of Christ, if you're unregenerate, if you're a pagan, if you're an unbeliever, um, the commands of God you can't hear. You're, you are purposefully, um, you're, you're suppressing them. It's like the, the, the teachers in the Charlie Brown um, cartoons, you know, wah, 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 wah. You remember those? Um, Nobody knows about Charlie Brown anymore. You can't hear the commands of God. You can't hear the commands of God and you don't know what God's commanding you to do. How do you know that God wants you to submit to your own husband as the church does to Christ? Because you've heard the command. Did you hear it? How do you know that God wants you to love your wife as Christ loved the church? Well, did you hear that? Did you hear it? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a big job. Okay, now you know you can do it. God doesn't ask you to do the things that he will not give you the power to do. And the fact that you hear the command is the first indication that he's calling you to do it and he's promising to be with you to do it. Uh, Augustine has a, a famous quote in his Confessions. The book is written as a, the whole book is written as a prayer to the Lord. And he says this in one, port, in one part, he says, O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Command what you will and give what you command. In some translations, it flips it around. Oh, Lord, give what you command and then command whatever you will. And, and, the, and the point is that it goes together. It goes together. When God says, this is what you must do, and you hear the command, then you know you've been given the gift of faith. You've heard it. And now that is his gift. That's your down payment. He's at work in you. And what is he at work in you to do? You're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He is at work in you to will and to do what is according to his good pleasure. That's how you know. Did you hear the command? Then you know that it's him at work in you. So this is not us ginning up good works. This is our response to his grace. This is his love for us and then his word to us saying, this is what I, I'll call you to do. And it's faith that hears it and it's faith that hears it as glory, not as drudgery, not as, oh, my, my taskmaster has come with more demands. No, when you, hear the, when you hear the word in faith, what are you hearing? You're hearing life. 
You get to do this. You get to do this. You get to confess your sins. You get to forgive. You get to put away all your bitterness. You hear the command, and the command is life. That's faith. Faith hears the command, and it's doing so because it's responding to God's gracious work. Therefore, the old marriage vows that included a wife's promise to obey her husband were completely biblical. This is taught here in our verse. The church is to be in submission to, um, to Christ, and the wife is to, is to imitate that. And this is true, it's completely biblical, whether or not you used the word in your ceremony. So there's no loopholes here. You say, well, we used a, another vow. I saw that word and I got rid of it. Well, too bad. Um, Christian marriage includes this duty, whether or not you explicitly vowed it. 1 Peter 3.6 would be another place we could look to. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. 1 Peter 3.6. Nor do we mind noting that scripture also says here that a wife is to imitate this obedience of the church to Christ in everything. It, the Bible does not teach that a wife is to submit to her husband and obey her husband in the important things merely, or when the stakes are really high, or when you think he's pretty right. No, it says in everything. You're to obey your husband in everything. Now, a wise man will not micromanage his wife. A wise man will not micromanage his wife. I mean, just stop and think for a second. Remember, God gave Eve to Adam as a helper, um, which is, is, is really a great thing and wonderful gift. Um, as long as Adam is not following Eve around and like doing everything for her or showing her how to do it all day after day, week after week, month after month. If, if, that's, if that's what you do, if you micromanage your, your wife, um, well, first of all, you're wasting a lot of time. And secondly, um, that's just dumb. Right? Why, why, why did you bring this helper on? So that you could walk around, follow her around all day long, telling her what she's doing wrong and how to do it right? No, it's, it's ridiculous. You don't, if, if you were just going to do it yourself, why'd you bother with the marriage bit? Right? That's not helping you. A whole point of a helper is to say, hey, can you please take care of this for me? Thanks. And then go do something different. Now, there may be a moment, there's time for instruction, there's time for explanation, like, you know, I'd like it done like this, not like that. Can you please watch out for this thing over there? But a wife is a manager. A, a wife runs things for her husband. Uh, in Titus, it actually calls the wife um, the house despot or the house ruler, the house manager. A woman rules the house under her husband, and she really rules. And she ought to be treated like that. She ought to be given the authority. Here it is. Here's the budget. Go for it. Not micromanaged. So a wise man will not micromanage his wife, but a godly woman will not resent her husband's instruction anywhere. Both those things are true. A wise husband won't micromanage his wife, but a wise and godly woman will not resent her husband's instruction anywhere. It says in everything. 
And so he ought not to micromanage his wife. And at the same time, he's responsible for all of it. And if he sees some part of it that he says, this is, this is not going to work out long term. This, this is not good for you. This is not good for the kids. This is not good for the family. It's not him overstepping to, to come in and say, you know, I mean, uh, this might seem silly, but, you know, like the way you're organizing the pantry here, I think it's not going to work out long term for our family. You know, and it might, it might seem kind of silly, but at the same time, like if he's right, well, he, he can speak into that. I, I think this is going to this is going to cause problems. This is going to this is going to cause trouble. We, we need let, let's talk about this. Let's work on this. Can we talk about this? A wise man will not micromanage his wife, but he must not shrink from responsibility anywhere. And so, on the flip side, a man may never say, a husband may never say, "Well, that's none of my business." No, sorry. In everything means you're responsible for all of it. You're responsible for all of it. The image we're given here is the image of the church's submission to Christ. And by that image, we certainly insist that the central postures of a godly wife are love, reverence, and obedience to her husband. There it is. We're not ashamed. We're not sorry at all. That's it. A a wife ought to love, reverence, and obey her husband. But by this same image, a wife should see her role as also including a great deal of input and feedback. You're her, his helper. A helper gives input. A helper gives feedback. A helper should speak to her husband. And again, we use the image of the church and Christ here. The church does not merely come before the Lord to receive instructions. We've gathered here this morning as the church before the Lord, and we haven't been silent the whole time. We've actually been saying quite a bit. We, we've spoken quite a bit, and we've sung quite a bit. Right? We've had a, quite a bit of input for the Lord. This is, this is the way it should be. We're invited to do so. The church does not merely come before the Lord to receive instructions. We come before the Lord to raise our voices in prayer, spoken, and sung. We had a particular prayer time where we lifted a number of specific things to the Lord, and we asked him to do things We asked him, would you please heal? Would you please deliver us? Would you please change this? Would you please bless this? We gave quite a bit of input to the Lord. The Psalms are the central prayers we are invited to offer to our Lord. Think about that. We have a whole book in the Bible, the Psalms, where God has basically given us a a pre-approved list of speeches that he would like us to use with him. He says, basically, in this book, you will find a bunch of stuff, a bunch of things that you're going to need, and I want, you to, I want you to say it to me. I want you to pray it to me. I want you to sing it to me. Here, 150, pre-approved. These are my favorite speeches. You know, they're form letters. Just sign your name at the bottom. I love these letters. And that's what God said, basically, in the book of Psalms. Here's 150 pre-approved speeches, things that you can bring to God. He says, you're going to need these. Use them regularly. Pray them, sing them, and use them as, you know, models. And if you want to write your own, great, but model them off of these because these are my favorites. And that's what the book of Psalms is, which is, means it's a pre-approved book of things that the church is to bring to the Lord, which gives us then a model for a wife in speaking to her husband. The Psalms are the central prayers we're invited to offer to our Lord, and we should note that many of them are full of praise, reverence, and thanksgiving. 
Lord, you're wonderful, you're amazing. I like how you made the heavens and the earth. They all tell about your glory. I love how you made the mountains and the oceans and the stars and you delivered Israel out of Egypt. Lots of Psalms like that, right? Lots of praise, recounting the works of God. So a Christian woman should regularly praise, honor, and thank her husband for his hard work, his wisdom, his accomplishments, his courage, his faithfulness. A Christian woman should regularly thank her husband for these things. This is how you respect him. I love how you go to work every day and you bring home the bacon. I love how you built the, our, our house or you build a fort for our kids. Thank you for mowing the lawn. Thank you for changing the oil. Thank you for paying all of our bills. Thank you, that's wonderful. I'm so grateful for how, how you take care of these things for us. There should be a lot of that. A Christian wife should imitate the church in praising her husband like that thanking him for his accomplishments, thanking him for his courage, thanking him for his wisdom, and so forth. <clears throat> Excuse me, this is respect. This is honor. Nevertheless, we do not mind also pointing out that many of the Psalms also include pleas for help. Many of the Psalms are, are cries, Lord, where are you? Lord, why, have it, why is it taking you so long to answer my prayer? I'm surrounded by my enemies. And so a Christian wife, likewise, might say something to her husband like, why have you been gone so long and why don't you answer any of my texts? I'm surrounded by people in diapers. Come quickly with chocolate to help. <laughs> well, what, what, are you, what are you doing? You say, honey, what are you doing? Well, I'm imitating the Psalms. I'm trying to be like the church is to Christ, right? That, that's how, that's how, how we're instructed to pray to the Lord. And so a Christian woman in the right spirit, in the right se- is, is completely free to bring her needs to her husband, just like we're instructed to do with the Psalms to the Lord. That's not out of school. That's not out of, out of turn. So there's a certain kind of asymmetry, asymmetry, meaning it's not symmetrical um, in Christian marriage between a husband and a wife that reflects Jesus and his church. And that really needs to be remembered in marriage. We're inundated all day long with all the equality, equality, equality stuff. And we touched on this earlier in the series, but yes, absolutely, a man and a woman are equally made in the image of God, equally um, have the inheritance of Christ and salvation. Yes, we believe all that. And yet there's also a glorious asymmetry. There's a glorious inequality between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, in their roles, and we must not lose sight of that. And so, for example, a Christian wife may pour her heart out to her husband in a way that a Christian husband must not do to his wife. You say, well, that's not fair. You say, well, welcome to planet Earth. That's not fair. Okay, yeah. Well, sorry, you're, but you're the man. And this is what God made you for. And this is one of the ways you model the church and Christ. Right? You model this. That's the, that's, the, that's the assignment. And so there is a sense in which a Christian woman may pour her heart out to her husband in a way that he must not do to her. Why? Because the model is Christ in the church. When we come to the Lord and say, Lord, you know, they're, they're slandering us again. They're making fun of us again. Help deliver us. You know, Jesus doesn't say, well, suck it up, buttercup. They did worse to me. Or you, you know how it makes me feel to have all y'all praying at me all day long? No, absolutely not. He says, thank you for bringing it. Thank you for bringing it. Yes, thank you. I'll take that too. Thank you. Right? There's an asymmetry there. Now, of course, 
a husband is not actually Jesus, but he is called to model Jesus to his wife. And so this doesn't mean that a Christian husband hides things from his wife. I'm not saying you're to pretend that you're superhuman and you never have any hard days and nothing bad ever happens to you, no. But it does mean that you must be careful to protect your wife from your feelings and burdens. She should know what's going on in your life, but you must not dump on her. So if it's, you know, a gnarly stretch at work and it's just, you know, it's, it's pretty challenging and difficult, she should know that it's challenging and difficult at work. But there's a difference between telling her that and saying, saying to her, yeah, it's, it's kind of bumpy right now. Uh, I don't know how it's going to land, but I know God is good and he's going to take care of us and he's going to protect us. When you say that, she knows the information. It's challenging at work. She also knows that you got it. She knows that you're trusting God for it. And now she's not tempted to worry or fear. At least she shouldn't be. But there's another way of coming home with the gnarly stuff at work and saying, yeah, my boss said this and then he threatened this and then there was all this stuff going on and I'm so stressed out. And then you walk away and you like, you know, <laughs> you forget about it and she's panicking. Right? You, you didn't love her, right? She's not made like you, right? One of our superpowers as men is having really short attention spans. <laughs> And it really is a superpower because we can, we can have something and then we would just turn it off often, right? And she doesn't have that superpower. She has different superpowers, right? And she's going to be up all night worrying about it if you do it like that, right? So this lines up with the way God made us. It also lines up with the image of Christ in the church, right? There is an asymmetry. And on the flip side, of course, this doesn't mean that a Christian woman can just dump or vent on her husband anything. You can sin in that way too, although you are more so invited to pour out your heart to him in a way that he must not do to you. You, must, you. you may pour out your heart to him just as the church does to Christ, and he must not resent it. But a Christian woman should labor to pour her, out, her heart out to the Lord first. So you say, how do I know if I'm just dumping on him or I'm pouring my heart out to him like a faithful Christian woman? Well, tell the Lord about it all first. That should be your, your, your modus operandi. So if you're at your work or you're at home, you're, you're taking care of the kids or whatever, and you're thinking about all the things that you want to tell him at the end of the day, okay? Make the list. And as you're making the list, tell the Lord about each one of those things. In general, I would say that if you're pouring these things out to the Lord in preparation for pouring them out to your husband, that list is probably going to adjust somewhat during the day, right? Probably some of those items are going to fade away. Probably some of those items you're going to say, Lord, I was going to, I was going to take it to my husband and I, was going to, uh, and I was going to, I was just really panicked. And then I realized I was panicking. Thank you, Lord. Uh, I probably don't need to bother him with that. There'll be, and there'll be other things where you say, oh, I do need to bring that up to him, but I don't need to bring it up to him the way I was feeling it this morning. Because, Lord, you took away my anxiety and now I see the item. I, we do need to talk about that, but now I'm not freaking out about it anymore. All right, so if you're bringing it to the Lord first, that's going to bless your bringing it to your husband. A, a man may not accept responsibility for everything and then resent the fact that she tells him about everything. Follow me closely here, guys. You can't say, I'm responsible for everything, and then she says, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing. Right? You're res are you responsible for everything? Yeah. Then she can bring everything to you. She can. Now, again, um, she should be bringing it to the Lord, and that will adjust how it comes to you. But nevertheless, 
if you're responsible for everything, in principle, there's no reason why she can't bring everything. At the same time, not every moment is ideal for sorting through everything. Not every moment is ideal for sorting through everything. And so a wise man must learn to thank his wife for bringing things to his attention and then commit to a particular plan for addressing the concern. Right? Commit to a particular plan for addressing the concern, including giving his wife permission to remind him if necessary. So if it's, you know, past your bedtime and it's already 7.30 p.m., and your brain doesn't work anymore, and she brings to you this really important thing. If it's not going to go, you know, if it's not going to go up in flame tonight, and he's like, you ask her, so when when do we need a decision on this? Oh, probably next Friday. Okay, it's Tuesday. Fr okay, Friday. All right, honey. Um, on Wednesday, after breakfast, can we make sure that we talk about this? And would you please remind me so I don't forget? Right. There, you've just made a plan for attack. You, you, you realize I don't have enough brain cells still awake tonight to deal with this issue, but I need, I need to love her and I need to care for her. And so make a plan for making sure that it's going to happen and give her permission to remind you of the plan so that she's not nagging. Right? There, there you've, you've made a plan and you're taking responsibility for it. A woman must not nag her husband, but a husband often leads his wife into that particular temptation, or if not nagging, worrying, anxiety, stress, all these things. A husband often leads his wife into those temptations when he does not give clear instructions for how her concerns need to be handled. How should she handle her concerns? Tell her, lead her. Show, tell her how we're gonna deal with it, how we're going to address it. Again, this is the model, is Christ. We bring our cares and our concerns to the Lord and the Lord has given us his word. He tells us how to handle our concerns. So a husband ought to do for his wife. I wanna close just with this last thought. There's a couple of passages that speak to the importance of a woman's um, obedience to her husband and how high the stakes are. In Titus 2.5, it says that women are to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, and obedient to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be blasphemed. That's Titus 2, verse 5. And then, and then in 1 Timothy 5, it says, I will, therefore, that the young women marry, bear children, guide the house, give no reproach to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some are already turned aside after Satan. It's really striking to me that in both those places where Paul gives instructions for the women in particular, he says the stakes are really high. He says a, a wife who's not obedient to her own husband is, is causing the word of God to be blasphemed and younger women who are not um, faithful, uh, faithfully seeking marriage, bearing children, guiding the house and so forth are giving room to Satan. It's really striking, right? The veracity and the glory of the word of God is at stake and even these duties of a woman to her husband play into our spiritual warfare with Satan. These, these things are not just nice things for Christian women to do. Paul says the word of God is at stake and you are in, in spiritual warfare in these matters. You are fighting the devil and you are clinging to the word of God if, as a Christian woman, you're being submissive to your own husband. You're obeying your own husband. You're following his lead. And if you're not, you're giving room to the devil and you're allowing the word of God to be blasphemed. 
It also says in 2 Timothy, for of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 3, 6 and 7. What makes women vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy? What makes women vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy? Sin and lust. Sin and lust. So the stakes are high, and therefore you must be free from all your sins through the blood of Jesus. You must be free from all your sins through the blood of Jesus. So that if Christ is your Savior, Lord, you must not balk in the slightest if he has given you a husband, Lord. So, are you clean? Are you free from all your sin, from all your lusts, from all your guilt, from all your shame? Or are there things that haunt you? Do you go to bed at night and you start talking, thinking about that thing that happened, that thing you did, that thing you said, that thing that happened to you? Or when something hard happens or something difficult happens, does it come back after all these years? Does it eat at you? Right? You need to get free. You need to get free through confession and forgiveness. You need to get free by laying it at the foot of the cross. Christ came, he bled and died to take away all your sins so that you might be free. So that you as a Christian woman might hold your head up high as a daughter of the king with no shame and then trust and follow him in your marriage. Do you have that? Do you have that kind of confidence, that kind of joy, that kind of gladness, is that kind of glory on your head? I've been set free, that your sins have been taken away as far as the east is from the west. Your savior took them. They were nailed to his cross. He died and he rose. And when he rose, the sins didn't come back. You're clean. Is that, is that who you are? You hold your head up higher. You say, yeah, well, yeah, I know a lot of people in this room are really clean, but you don't know what happened to me. No, don't say that. A lot of people in this room, what are you talking about? Don't you know that every single person in this room is, was born in sin? Don't you know that every single person in this room has committed sins and atrocities that would shame us to kingdom come? Don't you know that? Don't you know that's who we are? And don't you know that it's only by the blood of Jesus that we're clean? But by the blood of Jesus, we are clean. We are clean. And you, do, you, don't, you don't walk out of here saying, yeah, but I know, I know a lot of people are clean, but I, I, they just don't know what happened to me. Don't walk out of here saying that. Right? You, are the, you are the daughters of the king. He sent his own son for you. He bled and died for you. He rose for you. So that following him would only be glory. Just glory, a crown. Right? You're daughters of the king. You're clean. You're free. Do not walk around laden down by lusts. Do not walk around laden down by sins. You have been set free. Christ is risen. You are free. You are daughters of the King. Our God and Father, we praise you and thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to set us free. Father, I pray that every woman in this room, from little girl to older woman, Father, I pray would be completely free by the blood of Jesus. I pray that all the, the doubts, all the fears, all the shame, all the guilt, would be drowned and submerged in the blood of Jesus and never be seen again. And so, Father, I pray also that our marriages would be a glorious picture of that glory, of the glory of being free. Father, I pray that you would do that because we ask for it in the mighty name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, singing. Everyone who's baptized and not under 
Church Discipline is warmly invited to share this communion with us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9. There are at least two temptations with a glorious promise like this one. One temptation is to confess your sins, but then to fail to believe the promise that you're clean. You confess, but then you keep kicking yourself over it. You confess, but you keep wallowing around in the sin and the guilt and the shame because you're refusing to believe the promise that you are really forgiven, that you're really clean from all unrighteousness. Another temptation is to want to leap to the promise immediately without actually obeying the command. So many people throw a half-hearted confession into the air and then want to somehow claim that they have to be clean and forgiven. And then they wonder why they don't feel any better or why they just keep on sinning in the same way. Well, the answer is that you must truly and fully confess your sins in order to be forgiven and cleansed. This means confession to God and confession to those you have sinned against. Sometimes you may have confessed to God honestly and truthfully, but you're holding out and you're refusing to confess to your spouse or to your children or to your parents or to your teacher or an employer. And so you aren't yet forgiven or clean. You haven't finished the confession. And sometimes you may have confessed to the person you sinned against, but you haven't confessed to God. And so you aren't forgiven or clean. Of course, the answer to both temptations is to simply trust and obey. Do what God says to do, and then believe what God says to believe. Confess your sin completely and honestly to God. Confess it to anyone you have wronged. Say it was a sin, it was wrong, and then ask them to please forgive you. And when you have done what God calls you to do, then you must hear his authoritative word to you. You are forgiven, you are clean. And that promise is what is being proclaimed and sealed to you here at this table. Do not try to grasp the forgiveness without first confessing, but neither may you wallow around in the confession and refuse the forgiveness and cleansing. Both are offered to you here in the body and blood of Jesus. By these emblems, God proclaims to you the strength and grace you need for confessing and the sure promise of forgiveness and cleansing. It's all here in Christ. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and gave thanks. So let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we thank you for Jesus who died and rose again so that we might be able to confess our sins and get completely clean. We thank you for that and we thank you for what you're doing in our midst. In Jesus' name and amen. You are the people of the King. You are subjects of the King which means we are all under orders, and those orders are our glory. If you're a husband, you have orders. If you're a wife, you have orders. If you're parents, you have orders. You have, if, you're a if you're a child, you have orders. We all have orders, and the orders are from our king, and they are our crown and our glory. So go now with his blessing on your orders. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his counts upon you and grant you his peace. And amen.